Thank you for that uh, warm applause, uh, warm greeting, although I suppose some of it must have been for our guest rather than myself. <laughs> Archbishop, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this, the annual lecture of the Hellenic Observatory for 2007. In recent years, we've been very fortunate in hosting a number of very prominent Greek figures here at the school. These have included Lucas Papadimos, Yanis Papandoneo, Yorgos Alagoskoufis, Dora Bakayanis, the <laughs> <laughs> We seem to be shifting to some kind of TV reality show here of uh, popularity. <laughs> should I complete the list? Yes, I should. The Ecumenical Patri Patriarch and Costas Karamanlis. Let me move on quickly. We are delighted to welcome this evening Dr. Kostas Dimitris to continue this uh, tradition. In fact, I probably feel more comfortable in introducing Dr. Dimitris than some of our other guests. Too many other guests that we've had in recent times are now turning out to be more or less my own age, and I'm forced to look enviously on how rapidly they have risen in their careers. As you can appreciate, uh, humility is not something which comes easily to an LSE academic. <laughs> so I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Sumitis, who I know was a student here at the school when I was still um, a young child. Dr. Sumitis uh, graduated here from the School in Economics uh, in the early 1960s. We're delighted to also welcome his daughter, Marilena, uh, who took a PhD here at the school. It was during the period that Dr. Sumitis was Prime Minister in Greece that the Venezuela's Chair in Contemporary Greek Studies was established here at the LSE. And we're very grateful for the support that Dr. Sumitis gave at the time to the establishment of this chair. I'm very proud to have the Venezuela's chair at the LSE and to head the Hellenic Observatory. With the support of my colleagues in the observatory, we believe that the observatory has never been in such a good position. Perhaps more relevant to this evening, is the fact that Dr. Sumitis last spoke at the school in November 1994, not so long before he became Prime Minister of Greece. His topic then was his major political project, the modernization of Greek society, politics, and economy. It has been modernization that has defined his political mission. And though I wasn't at the school at the time in 1994, I know that his speech caught the spirit of the time. The school's then director, Tony Giddens, was developing his ideas on the third way. Later, Tony Blair would develop his notions of new labor around similar <coughs> ideas. The previous lecture caught the spirit of the time. Dr. Smithis's own career has in many ways reflected the path taken by Greece's political developments. His academic work was diverted, of course, by the onset of the Colonel's Junta in Greece 
in April 1967. He was a founder member of one of the resistance movements trying to overthrow the junta. Always a man of conviction, he has admitted placing bombs in the streets of Athens as part of this campaign. He was forced into exile and then joined Andreas Papandreou in his new political organisations. Dr. Sumitis delayed standing for Parliament, but accepted to become Minister of Agriculture after 1981. And his political career has been based on a core set of consistent beliefs. Modernisation, but also allied with a strong belief in Europe. Greece had to give itself the strength to play a full part in the European Union. As Prime Minister, Dr. Simitis's appeal was his purpose. He came into politics to do, rather like so many of his uh, successors, merely to be. His style represented the maturing of Greek politics. After stepping down as Prime Minister in 2004, Dr. Simitis can more comfortably reflect, of course, on the nature of modern-day politics. Now there is no need to fight for a democratic order. How can we engage the young in everyday political life? Now Greek politics has replaced excessive political emotion and the demonizing of the opposition with more pragmatic judgments on government delivery. How can idealism and commitment be sustained? Of course, this evening, Dr. Sumitis may focus on elections as a means of engaging the public in politics. There is, of course, the small matter of the election in his own political party about to take place. Uh, and I hope we can uh, ask the TV cameras from Earth and other stations to simply ignore any direct comments on this matter that Dr. Sumitis may wish to make. Perhaps we can make, keep this discussion private, just the 450 of us privately here uh, for this evening. We'll try to keep to the bigger themes of democracy and its applicability to modern society. And as a reward, let me say that if the 450 of you behave yourself this evening, you are all invited to a reception after the lecture, which is in the atrium, the Student Services uh, Centre, to the left outside this uh, lecture theatre. So, if you're on good behaviour, you will be provided with LSE wine. Is this good news? It is good news. Without any further ado, any further comment from me, let me ask you to welcome our lecturer for this uh, 2007 annual lecture of the Hellenic Observatory and to welcome back to the school one of our most distinguished uh, alumni, Dr. Costas Simitis. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. It's a honor for me to give the annual lecture of the Hellenic Observatory, and I thank the Hellenic Observatory and Professor Featherstone for this invitation.
as uh, Kevin said, I studied at the LSE from 1961 to 1963. These were very interesting years for me. After a stay of several years in a small and rather dull German university town. <laughs> the main topic of conversation at that time in London was the policy of the Labour Party. Because, that, because of that, I attended a seminar of the late Professor Mackenzie on this subject. The majority of students at the seminar came from overseas, mainly from Asia and Africa. Mackenzie started the seminar saying, many of you will become prime ministers. My advice to you is to keep a diary so as to remember what really happened. I laughed at the suggestion because I never expected that it will concern me. At the end of my premiership, when I started writing a report on the years 1996 to 2004, I saw that it was a big mistake indeed that it did, I did not have a diary. And I advise all students in the room to keep a diary. You <laughs> never know. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, throughout the European Union, political commentators have noted a growing dissatisfaction with politics and politicians people are becoming less and less interested in public affairs. The chasm between rulers and ruled is widening. Abstention from elections, complaints about politics and politicians, protest votes are all signs of disaffection with politics. Democracy, observers believe, is an ailing body. But how accurate is this diagnosis? Is democracy really in crisis? Public dissatisfaction with the workings of democracy is the same today as it was in the past. The difference nowadays is that while solutions may be evident, there are questions on many sides. Today's problems are not imputed by the majority exclusively to the elite who exercises economic and political power. They are imputed by broader groups in society to equally large groups. Groups that do not enjoy secure employment, good pensions and opportunities for social development, questions groups that have secured solutions even though they may not differ radically in social status from other non-privileged groups. The insured workers of today, for example, are much better off than those who are now joining the workforce. The latter have less chance of finding work and will be subject to inferior insurance arrangements. The present crisis is linked to the growth of the middle class. Services, as we know, acquire greater importance in economic life and along with them 
the middle classes. For instance, both in the north of France and the area around Turin, following the closure of mines and factories, the fiat factories, for example, the majority of inhabitants of what were once industrial cities now work in the tertiary sector. They voted left, they vote now conservative. Workers are no longer a distinct group on the margins of society. Due to the specialized nature of the work they now do, they put themselves on the same social level as white-collar workers and small entrepreneurs. They lead the same lifestyle. Their level of education has improved, the mass media ensure that they receive constant information. Thus, the range of citizens with opinions and demands who want political action to tackle their problems has broadened. Plans for the new era are the responsibility of political forces, which, however, hesitate to assume the role of guide to society with ideas and initiative for social change. Their view of the new is deliberately unclear. This hazy view precludes objections, ensures a wider range of options, and leaves the door open for changes. Party positions are formulated in such a way as to demonstrate to supporters that the party is interested but this interest does not come with any commitments. Their stance makes it highly likely that their decisions will be defined by public opinion. This political tactic makes a priority of what the opinion poll tells us the public want. Firmly held beliefs take second place and what is advisable or necessary in the long term is ignored. In this way, necessary policies for development and greater social justice are ignored. There is a very specific reason for the stance of the various political forces. In a society where the middle classes dominates and class differences are no longer particularly marked, the leading political parties represent at the same time diverse social groups whose interests and views differ and clash. In order to gain power, it is crucial that none of these social groups be alienated from the party. Their support must be ensured despite their divergent aims. In such circumstances, the requisite tactics is one that covers up and precludes conflict. Party discourse clarifies as little as possible. A consistent direction and sincerity are seen to limit chances of an electoral victory. Apart from these pluralist tactics, there are other factors that lead to public indifference to politics. Unfulfilled promises by politicians the collapse of state socialism, the demise of the hope that a different type of society is possible, the limited resonance of ideologies as well as the complexities of issues, 
the inability to understand them and the difficulty of forming an informed opinion on ruleless arguments. The public, however, may not understand the various aspects of a problem, but they do understand who is applying serious thought and effort to it and who is offering mere generalizations. They want to hear informed discourse that corresponds to their interests and experience. The antidote to the, to the so-called crisis is the repoliticization of politics. Depoliticization can be countered with discourse about what is possible and what is not, what is advisable and why, what must be avoided, what the costs and the benefits are. What needed is not promises, but explanations of what is happening. Instead of avoiding the political cost, what is needed is the courage of convictions and initiative. Politicization comes from honesty about problems and the desire for, tra for transparency and truth. As you know, voters showed a much greater interest in the French presidential elections in 2007 than they had in the past. Not only did far more people vote, but the pre-election rallies were larger and discussion more substantial. The reason was that the candidates did not use standardized language. They tried to distance themselves from standard party policies and present something new. That's the reason of the interest. The decline of ideologies and the, the inability of institutions to respond to expectations do not necessarily herald a period of diminishing importance for politics. Politics is not confined to established practice. It, uh, it can overcome situations that seem entrenched. The so-called crisis is precisely what leads to creative quests and provides suitable opportunities for change. An example is that of social movements and non-governmental organizations that arose from the current inertia and created a new positive set of circumstances. Ladies and gentlemen, tied up with the lack of interest in politics is the public's feeling that all they are entitled to do is to express an opinion during elections once every four years. In the interim, the public believes none of their representatives is interested in what they believe and what they want. They don't care about them. In a recent report, The Future of Democracy in Europe, the Council of Europe recommends a series of reforms to overcome these alienations. There are several measures that are uh, mentioned. I uh, will uh, uh, tell some of them. The possibility of more choice in elections, for example, a different vote for party and members of parliament, or someone elected, for example, as an MP, should have a deputy with whom they share the responsibilities of the office. Uh, 
election of expert advisory councils, councils of foreign residents in the country to be elected by special procedure, community service as an alternative to military service, possibility of local government at each level raising objections to decisions made by superior agency and different other measures. These measures may well lead to greater participation, but careful evaluation is required on how they function in the system overall. They give the impression of participation, but the issue is the citizen's substantive participation. Democracy is ensured by the ability to act together by a process that gives the public the feeling that they indeed are influencing events. I will refer to one of the many suggestions that were mentioned, participatory democracy. More processes of debate, hearings, and public discussions are recommended. These procedures ensure indeed better legitimization and greater acceptance of planned measures at the same time. But that is not enough in itself. There is a still a great distance between state and citizen. What is needed above all is the assignment of projects or specific missions to civil society, to the different organizations and initiatives which constitute it. The transfer of power must happen with imagination and method, not only where there is already such a tradition, but in as many fields as possible so as to reduce the distance between the citizens and faceless authority as much as possible. Social welfare is a good example of where power has already been transferred. To a large extent, it is provided both in Greece and other European countries with the assistance of NGOs and public institutions with strong private participation. A transfer of power can also occur within the context of quality of life issues, such as environmental protection and the everyday protection of the public. For example, when making complaints about public transport or the police, citizens today, in Greece and elsewhere, must approach impersonal services that normally are not responsive to citizens' appeals. Their sense of the status interest would be different if community welfare and public services had a council made up of consumers or other concerned individuals to whom they could communicate their demands. These examples are based on two observations. The first, the first is that an autocratic and authoritarian method of administration should be replaced by methods that have agreement, dialogue with society, and the finding of solutions that are widely accepted at their core. Indeed, there are new issues, such as bioethics, which cannot be tackled unless dialogue determines first what is permissible and what is desirable. The second observation concerns the level at which participation is the most productive. 
It is that which is closest to the public and to which, because of the proximity, the public can make a greater contribution. It is the local, the everyday. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a commonplace that the mass media have acquired a role in contemporary democracy for which there is no constitutional provision. The press is widely seen as exercising the right of monitoring and supervision that rightly belongs to society. According to theory, it should not impose policies, promote special interests, or exert its power in such a way as to dictate its choices to the government. The reality, as you know, is very different. The media, in particular television, are a parallel power to government. They influence the country's political and economic course. Television leads political parties to more dependency on economic capital and reinforces the plutocratic features of modern democracies. The monitor has become a co-wielder of power, and therefore the monitoring process is deficient. Attempts to curb the power of the media have been made in many countries, either through legislation limiting the concentration of ownership in the hands of few, or by regulations concerning the abuse of powers and the quality of television programs. However, despite all these efforts, political life is already determined by a factor whose limits are hard to define and remain unclear. Legal rules are not enough. Power is limited by power. Limits of action are determined by political forces in debate. The crisis in democracy in this case results from the lack of political will to counter the power of the mass media in their desire to use the media for their own purposes political parties have identified with them. Ladies and gentlemen, often listed under the heading democratic deficit are problems that have arisen and still do arise from restrictive measures introduced to combat illegal acts, in particular terrorism. One view holds that such measures endanger human rights. There is not necessarily a contradiction between human rights and security. The security of the public is a good that a democratic society protects. If lack of security may limit or negate human rights, but the elimination of all possible danger can lead to drastic limitation of hu on human rights. A democratic society must agree to live with danger. It must aim at balancing the protection of both security and liberties. The measure of imposed and permissible limitation on human rights and security is not predetermined, nor can it come from increasingly complex laws. It's a political issue, and it is determined by political processes. The higher the quality of democracy, the more convincing the demarcation. Here, too, Democracy is not in crisis. 
what we have is a political problem, conflicting views, and the public the debate that democracy requires. Ladies and gentlemen, a basic problem for democracy is the relation of any given country to the supranational cooperative bodies to which it belongs. The constitutions of all European Union member countries are subject to restrictions on the exercise of national sovereignty and permit the transfer of responsibilities to supranational bodies. What happens in the EU member state relationship is in accordance with the member state's constitution and is not a limitation of democratic rights. Nevertheless, it is a widely held view that unauthorized third parties, the Commission, the Council of the Union, make decisions for the people who themselves have no way of influencing what happens in Brussels. The distance between the new power and the people is not the only thing that accession to supranational body has increased. Many EU member states already operate differently from what has been constitutionally laid down and established. This in Greece is a fact. The balance of power between government and parliament has changed in favor of the government. It negotiates with the union over directives, regulations, decisions, and the distribution of funds. Parliaments in many EU countries are ill-informed and have limited participation in the formation of policy. People realize, for example, that on issues that are crucial for them, such as agricultural funding, their representatives have no say. Problems of democracy also arise to, to a great degree in the supranational level. The Union's present mode of operation does not ensure democratic functioning to the desired level. As we all know, despite the joint decision-making procedure, the European Parliament does not operate like national law-making bodies do. The European Commission is not a government elected by the citizens of Europe. The Union's democratic deficit is a real problem, an issue which needs to be seriously explored. There is no easy solution to these problems. Democracy, both in the relations of the citizens of a member state to the Union and within the Union itself, cannot be guaranteed by the models and rules that apply in the member states. The Union was formed in stages that did not always follow a coherent vision. For many people, the aim is to create a single European state that will replace the national states, a European federation. Others do not accept this. Their aim is European cooperation without abolishing individual member status and without obliterating national identities. Confederation, in other words. The European practice of member states has usually followed the form of intergovernmental cooperation. That means 
the states aim at arrangements and regulations that ensure that the Union and its members operate together in agreed upon frameworks. That's decisive. The framework is agreed. They do not accept unifying initiatives that would make the Union an autonomous pole of power. Great Britain is a known example. At the same time, however, new forms of cooperation which are not part of the federal or the intergovernmental approach are being formed. The regional states of northern Germany are developing common projects with Denmark. Belgium and Luxembourg promote through the cooperation of their social agencies unity beyond what the Union Treaty stipulates. European universities create common operating rules on their own initiative. The individual state is ceasing to be the fundamental element in these solutions. This new form of cross-governments is a means of compensating for an imposed but unrealized unification. Experience has shown that the, the future evolution, evolution of the Union will be marked by the retreat of individual states and the emergence of centralized power in Brussels. The lever for this process will continue to be the Union's central bureaucracy the mechanism that formulates what it considers to be the common interests of the member states. Its field of action will be determined by loose intergovernmental collaboration agreements that are made periodically. This new center will generate its own autonomy. At the same time, the democratic features of the Union will weaken. This is why a concerted effort is needed for as many member states and their citizens to participate in exercising European public power. The Union administration and intergovernmental bodies tend to deal with issues in a technocratic manner. They consider these issues to be the responsibility of Brussels bureaucrats and experts. The prime concern for union employees is to find compromises to meet the wishes of the member states and to accommodate the often divergent and contradictory national preferences. A common will usually emerges without any emphasis on conflicting political tendencies and ambitions. Political tendencies and ambitions are not discussed. They are forgotten. Depoliticization is seen to be advisable because it allows for the easy achievement of balances. This stance, however, does not favor what's most important, the public dialogue. Reinforcing democracy demands a very different approach. It demands the accentuation of the political dimension, unconstrained public debate and discussion of problems in an open forum. Common issues should be discussed before all national audiences. They should become citizens' issues too. In this way, information for all 
transparency, control and accountability will be ensured. The European public space, the European public space is the means by which the democratic deficit can be limited. The creation of this forum is the task of forces that want a strong democratic Europe. They must pursue it systematically and discuss simultaneously union issues in all countries so as to formulate common policies. This is not a new proposal. Proposals for such joint actions have been made, such as for a pan-European referendum on the acceptance of the draft constitution, for a Europe-wide joint mobilization for its acceptance, and for the election of the European Commission President by the European Parliament. These proposals met the strenuous opposition of member states that did not want to go beyond the framework of intergovernmental cooperation and feared the limitation of their autonomy. But the consolidation of democracy at a supranational level necessitates searching for and exercising new forms of cooperation that respond to the new condition of the post-national reality. The draft constitution was a very good example of what is done today and what could be done or should be done. The draft constitution was discussed in every country separately. In Great Britain, there was a discussion about the Constitution. The, there was a majority who said, we don't want a Constitution. In other countries, they said, in Greece, for example, they said, that's marvelous, we should have a Constitution. Nobody from France came to Greece, or no Greeks went to France to explain their views and Europeans from the continent did not come to Britain to explain why there should be a common constitution. When I suggested to uh, Joran Persson, who was Prime Minister of Sweden, that uh, uh, members of the European Parliament, other Prime Ministers, should come to Sweden and uh, present their views on the European Constitution, Goran Persson said to me, don't do that, this would be the way to have a, fer the, a result of the fer a referendum that will be negative. The Swedes don't want to hear anybody else than Swedes. But uh, th that's why there is no a public area of discussion in Europe. And without a public area of discussion, it's not possible to create a European identity. So there will be never democracy in Europe if there is not a public discussion in all of Europe. As I said, many countries and many people don't like this. But if we want democracy in Europe, we have to try it. Ladies and gentlemen, this analysis shows that the indication of democratic crisis that have been discussed so far 
do not prove that democracy as an institution has come to an impasse. On the contrary, it shows that there are ways of adapting it, that there exist ways of adapting it to the new era. It is hard to predict what shape democracy will take in future, especially in terms of how the national and the supranational levels will operate together. We lack knowledge of the social problems it will have to confront, of competing social and political forces, and of the outcome of social struggles. But uncertainty about future events does not necessarily indicate a negative outcome. Although the way democracy functions today may not satisfy the public, liberties and citizen possibilities are in present Western Europe at a higher level than they were during the first half of the past century. Democracy has made progress, even though this progress was linked with intense clashes, conflicts, and periods of oppression and darkness. Its future evolution will also be connected to showdowns, to the struggle of forces that aim to improve their position, to the broadening of democracy, especially at the social level. The solutions that emerge will improve the quality of democracy as long as they are part of a continuum of ideas, of institutions and policies that buttress greater freedom, equality and solidarity. There are dangers, of course. An ecological disaster or a massive influx of migrants from Africa and Asia to Europe could encourage autocratic tendencies in the Union. The power of the media and the influence of television has on public opinion may foster the rise of liberal, market-based oligarchies, Italy being a recent example. The issue today is to ensure that safety valves are placed to prevent the future declines of democratic institutions. As mentioned above, what will, be, what will play a decisive role in achieving this goal is a different politics from that on which the multi-selective parties have concentrated up to now. It's a politics that is not solely concerned with the acquisition and management of power the techniques of molding public opinion and the organizing of repressive mechanism, but with the essential problems of society and its citizens. It is a politicized politics in that it acts with social sensitivity in implementing specifically economic feasible measures and in assessing their consequences and overall contributions towards development. Ladies and gentlemen, democracy is not only about electoral processes, party rivalries and the pursuit of power. It has a crucial ethical dimension. It concerns people and their emancipation from bondage. 
It concerns the shaping of a society based on liberty, equality, and solidarity. The lifeblood of democratic politics entails thinking, discussions, and debates about values, principles, and the applications, about the continual improvement of rules that govern social life. If politics go, goes back to basics in a way that is visible to the public, the citizens will re-engage with the political process and realize the importance of political participation. Thus, they can become active members of society, become aware of their social responsibility and support social change. We have a duty to ensure this participation and in so doing, raise politics to a new level. Thank you. Dr. Smithis, for this uh, very incisive uh, lecture and uh, your reflections on this theme. We have approximately 30 minutes for questions and answers. Uh, can I remind you that I'm about to invite you to ask questions rather than to give us the benefits of your uh, preferred speech? Uh, and I think, given the nature of the evening, uh, I suggest that we group a number of questions. Uh, there are people, stewards with microphones, uh, uh, about to pass you a microphone if you're called. So can I invite you, please, to ask uh, questions? Could we take the gentleman here in the front? Could you perhaps just give your name and the question? Uh, my name is Christos Kolimanakis, uh, first year MPA student. Uh, first of all, I would like to ask to thank Elenic Observatory, but first and foremost, I'd like to thank Dr. Sumitis for being here with us. It's a great honor. Uh, allow me to go back eight years in 1999, uh, where the stock market index rose from 3,000 to over 6,000, and making farmers, workers, and uh, people who didn't have idea about stock market meant to s sell houses and all this stuff in order to buy stocks and bonds. Uh, some rational uh, market economists were trying to stop this craziness by trying to persuade the people that this is actually a bubble uh, since the data of the Greek economy does not, did not justify uh, the stock market index. But surprisingly enough, uh, you publicly announced that um, the Greek stock market as well as the Greek economy uh, were healthy and uh, that the stock prices reflected the real prices. Uh, so I would like to ask you, uh, talking about ethics in politics, uh, if you feel any kind of compassion about those thousands of Greeks who lost their fortunes, you know it's not just their ignorance, but it's maybe it's just the fact they didn't, that actually they trust you, and that's my question actually, thank you. Thanks. 
in the UK we have an expression, have you stopped beating your wife yet? And, uh, to give the translation. Uh, other questions? The lady at the back, please. Uh, hi, my name is Eleni Katirjoglu. Um, I would like to ask Dr. Simidis to comment how the political elites and the political parties uh, that constitute of people who have specific, uh, culturally specific skills and traits um, contribute in the lack of uh, a pan-European uh, space of deliberation. Thank you. Thank you. And can we take the question right at the very back here, please? Thanks. My name is Dimitrios Kapotas. I would like to ask Mr. Simitis. You've been minister, prime minister, president of PASOK party. So what's next? What's your next goal? And what role you'd like to play into the PASOK party right now? Okay, thank you. We'll pause at this point. Uh, each of those are nice, simple questions, so we'll let Dr. Zemitis gather his thoughts and then uh, respond. So, first question concerning the stock market. Uh, I agree with you that this was a very unhappy situation and uh, I feel that uh, uh, this was uh, not uh, managed in a right way and uh, there is a responsibility for it on the part of the government, of the then government but uh, in the same time I have to make some remarks you know that uh, Greek society has expectations and uh, at that time uh, there was a big expectation to gain money from the stock market and uh, not only the government party but also the opposition was a party that uh, was very careful about the rise of stock market prices when uh, the government of the Bank of Greece after a discussion I had with him, Mr. Lukas Papadimos, said in public that people should be careful. There was an immediately protest from the opposition party, and the government of the Bank of Greece was called by the judges, and they examined if he had made a public offense, an offense, because he had created a dangerous uh, opinion that, uh, for the economy. And then uh, Mr. Karadzas, the late Mr. Karadzas, uh, to whom also I spoke about it, said that uh, people must be careful. And uh, the same process was repeated. He was called by the public prosecutor the public prosecutor asked him to stop this because this was not something that was legal. Uh, that is for the first part of it. The second part, you know that uh, stock market prices in Greece, there was a bubble in Greece, 
but according to the opinion that exists in Greece, the stock market bubble concerned only Greece. The reality is that the bubble was an international bubble. The reality is that there were other countries, for example Finland, where the fall in stock market prices was even greater than in Greece. The reality was that NASDAQ, in NASDAQ, the NASDAQ stock index had a fall that was greater than the fall in Greece. Uh, there was a correction of the Greek bubble from 6,000 to about 5,000 and from 5,000 downwards to 1,500 of the index was the fall due to the fall of international prices. So, I would say uh, governments and the economy have to learn out of such circumstances and they must be careful. At this time, the Greek stock market has risen approximately to the same levels as they were. And again, people are not careful. And again, whoever tells that they should be careful is, uh, meets the critics of the press and of politicians that uh, he does not help the public to invest its money. So, uh, I think uh, uh, that's my answer. I have nothing to say more to this, and I repeat that it was a very unpleasant uh, situation about which I'm not at all happy. Uh, the question, the second question is concerning the political elite, but uh, I explained that up to now there is no public debate in the Union. I brought this example of the Constitution, and I can bring also this example of the election of the President of the Commission by the European Parliament, and the debate about the election of the President of the Commission, this has not taken place because uh, Great Britain and other countries said in the Council of, uh, in the summit that they don't agree with this. So it's uh, the political parties, the governments who must decide that there must be a public debate. As far as for invitations, there are invitations I come to I am here now, British uh, professors come to Greece, but that's not enough. It's an organized debate. As you organize a debate in a country, as there is in, when an organized debate in, uh, during elections in Great Britain or Greece, there must be an organized debate in the Union. It must be common that the Swedish Prime Minister can speak in Greece and the Greek Prime Minister can speak in Italy and the Italian in Germany and so on and the parties, the European parties must have such an organization that they can everywhere explain their positions. We must have a public forum. There is a Greek word for it, the demos. Uh, as in uh, ancient Athens, they called the demos where all people were there in discussion there must be a European demos. Uh, my future career will not be different as my career now, 
I am writing books and having lectures. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the future of the Pasok Party will be uh, the same as uh, the past of the Pasok Party. It will be a party in opposition and will be again a party in government and again in opposition. That is the, uh, the way political parties uh, live. You, he you heard it here first. Uh, could we take the gentleman here, please? Mr. President, uh, welcome. Um, my name is Yanis uh, Manolis. I would like to ask you about, uh, uh, do you believe that uh, is there a space between New Democracy and PASOK for an alternative uh, party? And if there is, have you ever thought to establish a new one? Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, right at the very back, please. Thank you for your speech. Uh, you talked about participatory democracy at all levels. I'd just like to ask you a question about globalization forces as opposed to uh, citizens' control. Um, what do you think is the social democratic policy response to the challenges of globalization uh, that we, it is worth debating at all levels? Uh, thank you. Can we take the gentleman right at the front, please? Uh, hello, my name is Yanis. Uh, I would like uh, to ask you what's your opinion about direct democracy. As we know now that uh, because of new, new digital technologies and Internet, direct democracy can technically be achieved. So what's your opinion about that and about if uh, politicians are mature enough to give up power to people and if societies, on the other hand, are mature enough to take the risk of being autonomous? Okay, thanks. Uh, could we take the lady in the middle, please, here? Uh, the microphone is coming. Thank you. Um, welcome, uh, uh, Dr. Samitis. Um, my name's Irene. Uh, I was interested in asking a question in relation to the future of Greece in the next um, 20 years. Um, how do you see Greece, um, I guess, changing and evolving with the times? Um, um, I guess any specific areas in the economy that you think that Greece can sort of take advantage of at the moment? I think that's pretty much it. Okay. How do you see Greece at the next 20 years? Are there particular advantages that in the economy that Greece will be able to uh, exploit? Okay. Um, there'll be time for other rounds. Uh, perhaps we invite. Yes. The first question is the third party question. This, many of you know, is a discussion that takes place uh, in Greece a long time. Up to now, there was no third party between, uh, a third party between PASOK and New Democracy. There was an attempt by Mr. Stefanopoulos, it did not succeed. There was an attempt by Mr. Samaras, it did not succeed. It was uh, an attempt by Mr. Arsenis, it did not succeed. It was an attempt of Mr. Tsovolas and did not succeed. So, uh, <laughs> the result is that I think uh, Greek people are quite... Uh, uh, they know that uh, 
if uh, they have small parties, then they, they, will, they will not have uh, secure governments, governments that can uh, lead the country, and they prefer to have uh, big parties in order to have majorities and uh, have uh, stability in politics. And I think this stability in politics is something that we should care. In Greece was, or Greece was always a country where there was instability. Up to 74, that was a very ins not stable country. Uh, in the 50s, there were the first five years, there were more than 10 governments that we had in, ten, in five years. And after the 55, there were every two or three years a new government. So this has changed in 74, and that's why Greece has made uh, big progress. Uh, I was in a member of a government uh, of uh, coalition, of a coalition of all parties in 89. It was the worst worst ever government I have seen because nobody followed what the Prime Minister said and I was amazed that the Conservatives in the government did not even hear what the Prime Minister said they did not want to hear they said we don't take orders from you we take orders from our party and that, that's not a possibility of cooperation so Maybe in future, if there, is, uh, there are different uh, opinions about policy, that a new third party can be created. But as for myself, I have created the PASOK and I will be always a member of PASOK. Now, globalization and the social democratic response. Uh, there are different social democratic parties and there are different answers to it. But my answer is, I think, that the only possible answer to globalization is to develop uh, policies in the European Union. Because uh, if you want to answer to problems that are supranational, you have to have supranational policies. It is not possible with national policies to respond to a problem that is not national. What happens in global markets cannot be answered by the Greek government. That is impossible. The Greek administration many times does not even understand what happens, what's going on. But uh, that's so. It's, uh, we should not laugh because... Uh, Greece is not as developed as other countries. And other countries have the means, and Europe has the means. So, but from the social, many social democratic parties want a European unification, not a single state, but a European economic policy. And you know that in Europe we have a common monetary policy, there was a discussion, a decision about a common economic policy, but still there is no common economic policy in Europe. That's why, for example, now there is a discussion, should we accept that the Europe has more and more value 
and creates problems or not. Uh, some countries want it, they accept it, the Germans want it, the French don't want it. I don't know if the Greek government has an opinion of it. I think they have not. <laughs> but uh, so uh, it will take time until the social democratic parties develop a common policy. And uh, I would say also the social democratic party of the, the socialist party of the European Parliament is a party that uh, has a program in extremely general terms. If you take the program of the last elections and you take the program of three elections ago, it would be the same. You cannot understand what the changes are. And this is due that, uh, as I explained also in my lecture, they don't try to politicize, to they don't try to say concrete answers to the problems. They are in the, the same opinion as the Brussels bureaucrats that problems are technical problems, and so they can solve technical problems. This also, that's why I believe that this is uh, something there, very important that we have to fight for, a policy a social democratic policy on European level. I was asked about direct democracy. Direct democracy does not exist, but only in some cantons of, the, of Switzerland. And uh, at the present stage of development of society, it's not possible to have direct democracy. You can have direct democracy for certain problems in a village, or you can have direct types of uh, democracy that uh, are nearer to di direct democracy. For example, in certain states, I think in the United States, uh, uh, certain uh, uh, funds of the budgets, how the certain funds of the budgets will be allocated is not decided by the government is not decided by parliament but is decided by uh, the administration local administration and that's also a type nearer to democ direct democracy they have to decide you have one million pounds shall we say and they have to decide where they want to allocate this one million pounds this is a type uh, of uh, this is a type of policy. I completely agree. It should be done. Uh, May I ask if you think direct democracy within a political party, whether choosing a leader, for example, is a good idea? Ah, that's uh, what happens in Greece. No, you know, in Greece they say this was the first time that is done in Europe or elsewhere. But it's not the case. The first time I heard, perhaps it was not the first time, is the election of the general secretary of the Socialist Party in France is done by an election that is all the members take, uh, take part. 
the, in Greece there is uh, a difference, not only the members, but the friends take part, <laughs> and uh, the friends of the party. And you know there is no clear line where the friends end, <laughs> and so everybody can vote. And I am not of the opinion that this is something that is acceptable, because if everybody can vote, then you cannot be sure who votes, has a real interest in choosing the right person, or has an interest to choosing the, most, the worst possible person. <laughs> so, but uh, you know, in Germany, for example, uh, Chancellor Schroeder was elected by the uh, Central Committee of the German Social, Social Democratic Party. There were 300 persons, 300 persons only, 300 persons. When I was elected uh, president of the PASOK party, there were about 5,000 persons. I found 300 persons is not right. That's too, too close, too, too small number. Uh, I would prefer because uh, the election is the result of a public discussion, of a real discussion. A real discussion cannot be an electoral discussion in the whole of a country. A real discussion take, can take place in a Congress on problems, on propositions, on differences, on how to act in certain circumstances. So in my opinion, the best thing to do is to elect the secretary of the party, the chief of the party, to elect whoever is the leader or the leaders by the Congress of the party. And the Congress of the party must be representative. Uh, I didn't understand the next question about politicians giving up power. This is not usual. <laughs> so... Uh, but uh, there should be lines. Uh, you cannot have the same persons for 20 years. This happens only in underdeveloped countries. They should change. After eight years, I said I had, uh, was eight years prime minister, and uh, I decided to go because I thought, and I think still that it was right to say, that there should be a change in the leadership of the party if we want the party to change. So that uh, there should be not a general rule, eight years or ten years or six years, but there should be a rule that after a certain time the leadership must change. Now, the last uh, uh, question. The last question, you know, uh, if you come to Greece, there are certain uh, sectors of the economy that are not developed. But there are certain sectors of the economy, of the Greek economy, that interlinked with international economy. And uh, the best example is shipping. So shipping can be done in London, it can be done in New York, but it can be also done in Greece, or there can be cooperation with uh, Greek shipping entrepreneurs 
or even the agricultural economy of Greece has many possibilities. I was discussing before, we have very good quality of products, wine, the Greek uh, olive oil and so, and still the exports are lagging far behind our possibilities. And uh, Greece is a center because there are many investments in other Balkan countries of cooperation between other Balkan countries and in future also with Turkey and Arab countries. So there are possibilities, but uh, the entrepreneurs come, should come to Greece and find them. Okay. We have a round for, uh, time for one last round of questions. The gentleman at the very back, please. Dimitris, uh, Papa Dimitri from the University of uh, Manchester. Um, would you um, agree with me that uh, um, the uh, evident problems of quality of democracy that uh, we see today in Greece emanate predominantly from the executive or from the legislature? And your premiership uh, has been in many ways identified with a very strong executive bias, sometimes giving the impression that uh, the government was uh, um, uh, governing in spite of what the party, or despite what the party uh, wanted to do, the only time, or one of the very few times that you tried to bring the party back into the um, uh, formal decision-making processes of government uh, during the, uh, the pension reform in 2001, the whole thing ended in disaster. Uh, looking back now, uh, do you think that uh, there is a tension, uh, an inherent tension between uh, uh, a strong parliamentary democracy and uh, um, a strong executive? Thanks very much. Thank you. Gentleman here with his hand up here. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Um, I'm Othon Anastasakis from the University of Oxford. I will be very brief and I will rephrase the title. Is PASOK in crisis? Are there lessons from the French experience? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I'm sorry. There was a, yes, here, please. Andrew Dismore, Member of Parliament. Uh, my first point uh, to, to put to you is that when one's looking at democracy in the context of Europe, every country has its own traditions. We have new democracies, emergent democracies in the, East, in, in the new accession countries, very old democracies like ours. And to try and draw parallels across Europe to create your concept of the demos is very difficult. I, I suspect that if foreign politicians were to come to the UK, it would be elites talking to elites are not actually reaching the grassroots. Which brings me to the, the main point about participatory democracy. And one of my concerns about that is that we end up having the loudest voices who may not be representative dominating the political decision making, which is what you don't get with traditional parliamentary representative democracy. And I think what we're trying to do or need to do is to reinvigorate parliamentary democracy by making it much more consultative. In the end, Parliamentary elections are what generates the highest turnouts. We need to obviously improve those turnouts, but also make sure that us practicing politicians make ourselves more accessible, uh, listen to people more, but in the end, we make the decisions and stand or fall by them at the next elections. The problem with participatory democracy, certainly in, in, that I've seen, is you get small, small groups of people turning up trying to dominate uh, decision-making to the exclusion of often the disadvantaged minority who don't participate. Okay, thanks. Could you just pass it to the gentleman here? Thank you. My name is Michael Galiatsatos, and uh, dear Mr. President, as chairman of the PASOK in the United Kingdom, 
I'm sure you forgive a hard question to you. Without doubt, when your government was in the office, Greece achieved so many things. For instance, the entrance in the European Monetary Union of the country, continuous and big growth. All the big infrastructures happened during your time. Three years after uh, New Democracy inaugurated your projects and say by saying that, okay, this is Atikiodos project or, I don't know, Rio Adirio Bridge or whatever. So, the speed with which Greece went during your governments, it was amazed. How you could explain that at the end of the, your second term, the Greek people turned their backs to PASOK, and then, you know, the result, we lost the election in 2004. Okay, thanks. Um, I'm sorry the clock suggests that we should give Dr. Smithis the chance to respond to these questions, and uh, that will be the final round. Now, uh, the first question about equality of democracy. Uh, I don't quite understood uh, your distinctions. You said uh, the quality of democracy could depend more on parliament uh, or the executive. Or, uh, didn't quite understood what your opinion is. But I would say that the quality of democracy depends on the parties, on the executive, on the administration. Uh, we must understand the following. If there is a situation of, shall I say, uh, not a not yet developed situation in a country, there are no sectors in a country that are developed are, and others that are not developed. The same happens throughout the country. The system is not developed. The parties are not developed. If the parties are not developed, the executive and the parliament is not developed. And the more they develop, the parliament gets better and the executive gets better. The idea that uh, we have bad politicians in a good country is an idea that I don't accept. It does not exist. You cannot have bad people in a good country or a bad country and good politicians. We politicians represent the country. And the voters and the people of the country are, have the quality the country has for its economics, its uh, social uh, structures and so on. Forgive me, I'd understood the question as being that is there an antithesis between the strength of the executive and the strength of parliamentary democracy? And that I think there was the suggestion that in your period you'd strengthened the executive. But uh, what happened during my period is what has happened all over Europe. All over Europe the parliaments have lost power. If you read books about uh, uh, 19th century England, 
di Israele o di time of Victoria then you see that Parliament was the most important of the organs of democracy now it's not anymore and that's why we have to look how Parliament works and what else is to be done now the question if Pasok is in crisis uh, has only one answer Pasok is really in crisis <laughs> but uh, you know I said also in my speech here that there are some salutary crises, crises where you can see the problems and then solve these problems so it's not bad to have a crisis uh, the evolution uh, of political parties, of society of humanity Uh, suppose it's crisis and so on. We can find solutions and PASOK should find solutions. Uh, the uh, next question is uh, about participatory democracy. You are right when you say that uh, participatory democracy in the sense I presented it or in the sense it is used in the United States is not enough if the whole of the system does alienate the citizen but uh, that's why we have to find many solutions it's not only one solution to have more committees or to have more dialogue uh, the Council of Europe suggests uh, different solutions and so we can apply all this and try to find uh, methods to involve people but uh, today Uh, I take the example of Greece because in other countries it's quite uh, different. In Greece, people are not involved in politics but once in every four years. It's very difficult for them to s express their opinion. And uh, it's not like that in Switzerland. It's not like that in Germany where there is a very developed uh, local uh, democracy. So we have to find ways and participatory democracy is one of the ways to have better democracy. And now the last question. Why people do, uh, did vote new democracy? I think uh, there are different reasons. But uh, I will mention one or two. Uh, Pasok was in power for 11 years. If you take the European states and the European parties and ask where in Europe did parties have the government more than 11 years, then you will find very few countries where this has happened for one time. In Sweden they had a government, a socialist government for 35 years. That's an exception, and that has, has not happened elsewhere. In England, there was a conservative government for 18 years, and maybe the Labour Party will have a government more than 11 years. <laughs> But also, the 18 years were an exception. Before the eight, uh, 18 years, usually there were a change every four years or every eight years. In France, no party ever had uh, was in the government for more than 
eight years. Usually they changed four years. In Germany, Kohl was prime minister for 12 years. And this was also an exception. So after 11 years, people get accustomed and they want a change. And this is not so bad. It's right that they want a change. Maybe the government is a good one, but uh, even then, they think that maybe the other is a better one. This is possible. Why not? And in Greece, you should also see how people usually vote. If you, this, there are studies in politics. When they vote, how do they vote when they are not satisfied? And why are they not satisfied? Sometimes they are not satisfied because they have not enough money and they want a change of government. But many times they are not satisfied because they are people of the same social group have under the new circumstances more money than they got. That's very usual. And that is proven by social... Uh, 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 no, they have uh, searched for it, social research. So, that's one thing. The other thing was that new democracy came and said, Pashok gave to you whatever it could give. So, vote for us, we give you more. <laughs> and they said that they indeed will give more. And people thought that they will get more. And then they saw that they didn't get more. <laughs> this happens. So, uh, that a government changes does not mean that it's a bad government. It can be a bad government. But also a good government changes because there are more expectancies than uh, the government can uh, answer. Uh, so, uh, and then, if we want a democracy that functions, there must be changes in power. Because if you asked people five years ago if new democracy, so I can make a comment for Greek politics, though it's not good to make comments on Greek politics abroad. But if you asked people in Greece uh, before five years, would be good democracy a good government? All of them would say yes, why not? Uh, and now they know that it's not like that. It's not uh, sure that you get always a better government because the new government has not experience. That's very important because if it, even if it has experience, it has no policies. And this happened in Greece many times. Parties do not have policies. They don't discuss policies. Take, for example, the university problem. You cannot discuss the university problem in a party because if it's discussed, there will be immediately a clash between different groups in a party. So it's not discussed, and when the party comes to the government, it does not know what to do. This is the bad thing about this multiple... Uh, selective policies. Or when I was, I remember, 
when Pasoki was in the opposition, I was responsible for the education. So I decided to make a program for education because I wanted, if Pasok is elected, that Pasok has a program. We prepared the program. I made many compromises because uh, I did not agree with uh, the other members and the party groups about what they wanted, but uh, I prepared the program and we went to Andreas Papandreou, who was the chief of the party, and I said, we have finished the party program and we want to publish it. And he said, no, don't publish the, uh, the program adjudication. This must be studied and then we have to decide in our committees and then uh, it must be go to the central party. And as we understand, this never happened. <laughs> Well, thank you. We seem to have uh, finished on uh, one of the most interesting aspects about university uh, reform, uh, a debate which uh, seemingly will never finish. Um, I think it is uh, time that we are all rewarded by going to the reception. To remind you, the reception is in the atrium uh, to the left of this uh, lecture theatre. Could I ask you, please, for security reasons, to remain seated in your uh, seats? Uh, whilst uh, Dr. Smithis leaves, leaves the, uh, the theatre. But before we do, on your behalf, can I uh, please ask you to thank our speaker for his uh, lecture and for his willingness to...